we are going to transition directly into our uh, scripture time, teaching time. So if you have your Bible with you, I hope you do, you should open it to the book of Nehemiah. We have been, I have been teaching through the book of Nehemiah, and it's been, I don't know how you feel about this, but I feel a little bad, just being honest. It feels like it's been a little hit and miss. We've had, we started, we had some sickness, we didn't have church for a little bit. Well, I've been a few other places that just, it just has been a little hit or miss, but we are in Nehemiah chapter four. I'd like to uh, uh, maybe just do a little bit of background to catch us up, and then we're going to read the verses for today. That way, uh, all of us can be on the same page. We're going to read verses 7 through 14 eventually when we get there. But just to remind you that the last time we taught uh, or we, we, we uh, wrestled with this text, we were from Nehemiah, the first six verses, uh, chapter 4. And we were talking about uh, the battle that was, that was taking place, not a physical battle at that point, but the battle that was taking place to build the wall. Now, those of you who have been here the whole way through, we, we, we placed a lot of emphasis on the beginning about what walls are for and why we have walls and, and the, the value of them. And the entire time I've been, I've been asking us to not just study what's happening back there and, and understand what that is, but, but to pull that over in, into our day and to say, what does it look like for us as an individual? What does it look like for us as families? What does it look like for us as a church? Or you could even do the broader church. Or you could even say as a country, although we probably have less of a play in that than, than we have in all the other ones. But what does it look like to do the same kind of difficult work to say, if the wall is broken down or the gates have been burned by fire, how do I rebuild them? What needs to be rebuilt? Am I willing to do that? Am I willing to, uh, to honestly assess the places that aren't like they should be in my life, in my family's life, in my church's life? and then work on repairing them. And then we figured out very quickly that when that begins to happen, there's immediately a battle that comes to play, right? There's immediately those who are opposed to what God wants to do in his people. That's universally true, by the way. Has always been, always will be until the Lord returns. There's an opposition, and we talked last time as we kind of read through the first six verses, broke them apart. We have the names of those people that were uh, against them. They were, they were despising them. They were speaking. Uh, they were making fun of them in, in some ways. And we talked about the, uh, the types of opposition. That's kind of what we broke down, the types of op opposition. You remember that they, uh, there was doubt being cast as to who, the builders themselves, whether they were able to do it. There was doubts being cast as to who God was and whether he would be able to hold up his end of the bargain, even if they were to rebuild. Uh, there was doubts being cast as to the worthiness of the project. Is it really worth it? All the hard work and all the energy and all the fighting and all the discouragement you face and all the work you have to do, is it even worth it? And of course, there was doubts about the results. Are you even going to get what you're after in the end? We talked about all those things. Let's now turn our attention to verse 7, because we ended by saying in verse 6 that despite all those doubts that were being thrown at them, they had a heart or a mind to work, and they built the wall up to half its height. Verse 7, chapter 4, Nehemiah. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem were going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. In Judah, verse 10, in Judah it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves we will not be able to rebuild the wall. 
And their enemies said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. At that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us 10 times, you must return to us. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. Lord God, we come to you because we know that when we want to rightly understand this text, that you are the one that must inform us through the Holy Spirit. You are the one, in fact, that must teach us. I pray that you would do that this morning. Even as I have prepared, I give you permission to say through my mouth what needs to be said, whether it's prepared or not prepared. And I want to give you glory for any good thing, and I want to accept responsibility for anything that comes out in error. May you have your way in our hearts, Father, in Jesus' name, amen. We're going to break down in just in two different sections here today. You have a handout on the back side of your bulletin if you'd like to follow along and jot down notes. If that helps you pay attention and track along what's going on. When the opposition found out that the work was increasing, it says very clearly they were angry and they plotted together. It's the first main point we're going to make, is that they plotted together and they uh, wanted to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. Can I remind us again this morning, I think it's really, really important. Whenever we read scripture, whenever we're studying a story, whenever we're looking at stuff that's happened historically, we look at all those things and we learn about them, but we also remind ourselves to continually be informed about our theology, what we believe why these things happen. You know, it's, it's important for our day and age. We're in the middle of a big, huge battle. Are you right? Is that right? We're in the middle of a big, huge battle. Currently, it's important to remember why these things happening. It's important to remember where this is coming from, what's going on. I want us to know all the way back, go back to the very beginning, we find why this guy named Sanballat and this guy named Tobiah and all these people, why were they so upset with the Jews that were rebuilding. Why did it matter to them? Well, I mean, well, we talked about some reasons early on. It definitely has influence to them. It, 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 it affects their daily lives. But there's something much deeper. Go back to Genesis, and you read how God created things. He, he created Adam and Eve. They were perfect. They had this incredible relationship with, with God, and then something happened, right? Sin happened. They fell. But during that interchange that God had with Adam and Eve, you remember what happened, right? God first of all, came to who and asked if they ate from the tree? Who did he come to first? Remember, we should be awake so everybody I know you're, you're paying attention. Who did he come to first? He came to Adam first. He said, Adam, did you eat? And what did Adam do? He blamed Eve, right? Well, he pointed the finger. He said, yeah, this woman that you gave me. So he goes and talks to Eve, and what does she do? She blamed the serpent. And he goes and talks to the serpent. In that discussion with the serpent in Genesis 3, verse 15, he says this. God says this. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Let me ask you this, church. What is the reason why whenever God begins to do things in his people that the enemy comes right away with opposition and doesn't like it? This right here. 
Because God says because of what happened there, there's enmity between you. By the way, when John in his revelation saw all these things unfold, he used a different visual, but the exact, pretty much the exact same concept. He said that, uh, uh, that uh, I should, maybe I should read it so I make sure I get it right for you. Hopefully I can find it because this is not in my notes. When Satan saw the woman as she gave birth, the dragon came. And when the dragon tried to kill the child that was born and he couldn't because it was snatched away, it says that for the rest of the time, what did he do? He waged war against their offspring. That's us. That's, that's, that's a picture of the cosmic battle. Listen, this is important for us, theologically speaking, to understand because you know we have flesh and blood that's out there and we get very angry at them sometimes and we say, last week I had to share some things about this. We, we talk very negatively. We, we get all wrapped up. We cannot lose sight of the fact that there's something far, far deeper going on. As Paul would write to the Ephesians, and you probably know what I'm going to quote is from Ephesians chapter 6, when we're fighting, we're not fighting against flesh and blood, right? But against powers and principalities evil forces. It came in flesh, right? When Nehemiah was looking at the guy named Sambalat, they were both in flesh, right? But there was something far deeper going on. The enmity that was there. They came, they plotted, going back to verse 8 in Nehemiah, that they would fight against Jerusalem and cause confusion. Now, the, notice there's a two-pronged approach. There's a fight when, when the words they shared in the first uh, section I just uh, referred to, in the first part of chapter 4, when those words were not enough, they said, we're going to up the ante a little bit. We're going to make it a little, more, a little more real to them. And they've threatened to come physically and fight. But the second thing they talked about is they want to cause confusion in the city. And this, I think, is probably where we see the enemy work more than anything. That word confusion, by the way, the Hebrew word, is a really interesting word. It means to vacillate. You know what vacillate means? It means to waver to go back and forth. Now think of, think of that. When they came, they said, well, we might march in there and fight you, but we're just as interested in just bringing confusion, vacillation, back and forth, wavering. I'm not sure. This is why the enemy specializes in doubt, because I'm not sure. Again, we should hear the serpent coming to Adam and Eve in the garden and saying, did God really say? That was not an outright, God's wrong. But it was a, can I get you to waver a little bit? My friends, the tactic has not changed across the millennia. Did God really say, can I get you to waver just a little bit? Can I get you to move just a little, just get a little confused? Can I just stir, muddy the waters just a little bit so that you're not sure anymore? And when we don't sure, then we're going to give up or we get discouraged or we're going we're gonna to pass, go, go on by. So they are going to fight or they're going to cause confusion. Now, last week... Now, it wasn't last week. Last time I preached out of Nehemiah, we looked at the different types of, of, uh, of opposition that we were facing. Today, I'd like to look at some of the things that happen in this text and show you some sources of where that opposition comes from. And there's a difference there. We can have different types of opposition. We can doubt the builders or God or, or the worthiness of the project. Those are the things we talked about a little bit ago. I just mentioned them in, in reminder. But we're going to see the sources for where this opposition comes from. Let me just work through this list pretty quickly here. First of all, we see that they come in the form of internal doubts from within. Look at what verse 10 says. The strength of those 
who bear the burdens is failing. There's too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. Now, I put what they said up there, but what's most important is who said it? Who said it? In Judah, it was said. That's the phrase that means they themselves. It was themselves. They said, oh, the strength, we're getting weak. We're getting tired. We don't, I don't think we can do this. There's too much rubble. By ourselves, we're never gonna get this rebuilt. The source of opposition, the source of doubt that's coming is actually coming from inside. You notice the uh, last time we taught on this, I said that one of the types is that they're doubting the builders. They're verbalizing that these builders aren't gonna be able to do it. But guess what? That's effective because there's already that little voice inside of us saying, I don't know that I can do that. I don't know that I can pull this off. If I can be directly honest and ask you to be directly honest and just say some things that we don't often usually say out loud, as husbands, as men who are tasked to lead our families, in all ways, but certainly spiritually speaking, how many of us give up or don't do it because we inside are not sure that we're going to be able to rise to the occasion and do what we really need to do. So we'd rather not try at all than try and fail. By the way, I want you to notice something, though. Look at verse 6. Verse 6 says that the people had a mind to work or a heart to work, and they built the wall up. And in verse 10, we realize it's these same people who begin to say, it's too much. The work is too much. What changed? What changed? I want us to see that the, those internal doubts began creeping in and taking a lot stronger prominence in their minds and out of their mouths when the external threat came. When, there was a, when, there was, when the opposition rose up even higher, the internal doubts. Now, now listen, that's important. That's important because we face trials in our lives all the time, don't we? And many times when we are in the middle of a trial is the time that we face the most doubt inside of us. The most question of, can I really do this? Am I, am I gonna make it, am I gonna make it through this? Or is, is this worth it? All these things, of course, are all working together at the same time. It's one of the reasons, hear me, church, it's one of the reasons why we have a tendency when the going gets tough, when things are rough in our lives, it's one of the reasons we tend to withdraw from people. We tend to pull away from church. We tend to pull away from other people that care about us because we were struggling and we're feeling overwhelmed and, and we tend to pull back. And the problem is that's the exact opposite of what we should do because it's in those moments that the internal doubts are gonna come the strongest. We should be around the people who will encourage us and exhort us to stay faithful and remind us of who God is. And we can all say yes, but I can tell you the next time a test comes, that's really, really difficult. When we're hurting, we want to pull away and we should do the opposite. We should press into the Lord. We should press into God's people. Those doubts came from internally, but of course, working in conjunction with that were the external threats that they were facing. This time, the phrase is, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. And who said it? Not the ones in Judah, right? 
This time it was the enemies that said it. They said, we're going to come upon them. We're going to spring a surprise. They won't even know we're there, and we're going to kill them. We're going to stop the work. We, they were intimidating them. They were threatening physical action. You know, as, as, as American Christians, we haven't faced a whole lot of this. We faced a lot of the other stuff that's going on. But there are Christians the world over who face this kind of external threat all the time. That if you will take the step you're going to take, if you will do the work that God is asking you to do, we will come and we will kill you. We will come and inflict bodily harmony. We will come and stop that work physically speaking. I want you to notice, however, though, although they do give a physical, there's the, there's the threat of physical harm, a lot of what's happening there is a psychological intimidation. Do you notice the words that you, I mean, they didn't just say, hey, we're going to come and destroy you and stop the work. They said, we're going to, they're not even going to know that we're there. We're going to sneak in. We're going to surprise them. Do you, do you see how the element of surprise adds a psychological dimension to that? Because you're constantly operating in fear about what might be. There's a lot of this stuff going on, by the way, right now. A lot of psychological intimidation. I mean, the words coming out may imply some physical things, but it's a lot of psych psychological things, things that are, that are in here that you're thinking about, and it's causing you to worry or concern or whatever the case, get all worked up when that's not really, uh, when, when, and it's causing a, a distraction for us, or it's causing us to, to not do the work that we should be doing. By the way, I should have said at the beginning, all of these uh, types of, of opposition are causing the work that God has for them to do to, to slow down or to stop. That's what the intention of it is. All right, we covered internal doubts. We covered external threats. There's one more that comes yet in uh, uh, verse 12 there, which is a bit of an interesting one. I call them sideline distractions. There's nothing special about these names, by the way, here. That's, that's just my way of, of packaging things. Sideline distractions. Look at what it said. You must return to us. Look at who is saying it. Maybe I'll just put you to the test. Who's saying this phrase? Who is it that comes out and says, you have to return to us? The Jews around them. So in Judah, the very first one I ever shared was the people there in Jerusalem. The enemies were the ones that we read about in, the, in verse 8 that were going to come and fight and cause confusion. These are the Jews who were around them, surrounding them, in the surrounding areas. Those Jews who are, which side are they supposed to be on? If we're going to play the side thing for just a moment, which side are they supposed to be on? The people rebuilding or the enemies? They're supposed to be on the people rebuilding. But what do they do? What do they say? You must return to us. By the way, there are two different ways that you can take this statement and apply it and, and, think what's, and, and decide what's going on. I'll tell you both ways. The first, I think, is more likely, in my opinion, but I'll tell you both ways. Uh, the first way we could take this is that uh, you remember that all the people, you remember all the, the chapter we had all the names of the people that came and built the wall? And they were not all from Jerusalem, right? They came from the surrounding areas. So they all left those places and came to work on the city. And it's their people that are from back where they were from that are telling them, hey, you need to come back to us. You need to return to us. They were probably feeling unprotected themselves. They were feeling in need. I mean, think about this. If all the good hard workers, the people that get stuff done, all suddenly leave for a little over a month, month and a half, 52 days it's going to turn out to be. They all leave and, and, they, and they go do some work somewhere else. What happens to what's left here? Who's going who's to milk the cow back at home? Who's going to take care of the fields back at home? Who's going to do the house maintenance back at home? Who's going to provide food back at home? 
you must return to us. Now, the second way you can take that statement, by the way, I want to let the, 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 the to us is implied. It's not actually, it's not literally, it's not, not physically, either. the word's not there. So really it just says, you must return. The other way to take it is those in the surrounding areas are agreeing with the enemies that all those people that came with Nehemiah from, from other places of the empire to rebuild the wall, they want them to go back. Drop it and go back. Stop the work, go back. Go back to where you came from. We don't want you here. In either case, I suggest to you the reason for the statement they're making is because they too are feeling the pinch of the enemies around them that are, that are threatening physical harm. Think about it again. If I have a group of people that are saying, we're gonna come, surprise, surprise attack, we're gonna kill you, and we're, and we're gonna also kill all the people out here, and all your men are there working on the wall, not back here protecting you, you feel a little vulnerable, right? They're telling them, come back to us. The point I wanna make to you is, as they are saying something that seems to make perfect sense, right? It seems to make perfect sense. Why should they not want them to come back? They have needs. They need protection. They need help with whatever. They, 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 they want them to return. What seems to make sense, however, in the end, has the same result as the internal doubts and the external threats, right? The same result is they're trying to stop the work from happening that God has said should happen. Listen, friends. I think this third one is probably the least noticeable. We're pretty aware when we get an external threat. We're typically fairly aware when there's internal doubts going on. We're typically pretty aware of that. We are not very aware of all the things that distract us. They might be good things. They might make a lot of sense. They might seem to have a lot of justification. But if they're distracting us from what God has called us to do, then they are opposition. They need to be ignored. That seems pretty harsh. I'm going to show you in a little bit here. That's exactly what Nehemiah does, though. Now, again, I, I, I want to make sure you get this. We have real people. They're living in areas, and they have a lot of the people that just left, and they're, they're feeling like they're vulnerable to attack. They're feeling like they're not getting their stuff done. And they have real needs. They're really needy people. But was it the job of those that were called to rebuild the wall to go back and help them? In this case, the answer is no. And that gets pretty hard for us, I think, sometimes. There's all kinds of needy people around us. There's all kinds of things that we could be doing. There's all kinds of things that seem like they're very necessary. But the question for us is, what has God asked me to do? And that's the thing I should do. And not be distracted by all kinds of things. I, I can tell you I have faced this in ministry lots of times. There's a lot of things I could be doing. But what should I be doing? I have a limited amount of time. I, don't, I can't get everything done. You guys all know that, right? Because otherwise I'd visit all of you every week. And I can't do that. What should I be doing? We saw a glimpse of this for you Bible quizzers. By the way, good job to the Bible quizzers yesterday. For you Bible quizzers, make sure they're all paying attention when I say this. We see a glimpse of that in the book of Acts. Because when the murmuring arose that the widows were being ignored in the feeding, and the apostles said, hey, we can't be distracted from prayer and teaching. And so they did something. Anybody, when the quizzer know, what, what did they do? What did they do? To solve the dilemma of, of, of making sure food got out to the needy people, but not take them away from the task that God had called them to do, which is to teach and to pray. What did they do? Yeah. 
They anointed seven people who had good, good reputations, were sound mind, they were faithful brothers, and they, they, they set them aside and, and they made them what we call deacons. Again, a nice tie in for this morning. What we call deacons to serve the people so that the apostles could do it. There was a distraction looming, a very necessary thing, right? But there's a distraction looming, and the apostles said, We can't, we can't deviate from our task. If we're going to rebuild walls, can I speak frankly again? You don't really get a choice. I know you could tell me no, but I'm probably just going to say it anyway. So. But I would like your willing participation when I speak frankly. If we're a family and we want to rebuild walls, there are a lot of things that can distract us. Moms and dads, are we listening? There's a lot of things that can distract us and seem needy and seem important. But if they're taking away from us building a family that honors God, they need to be ignored. They need to be sacrificed. They need to be taken away. And I often mean that in a personal sense. Heidi and I have often said that uh, we have no idea how selfish we are until we have children. Because suddenly you have to sacrifice all the things you want to do and have been able to do, even as a married couple, all the things you want to do and say, I can't do that anymore. And that's a, that was a hard lesson for me to learn. I'll just be very honest. I don't think I learned it very well. You can ask Heidi. probably took me the better part of our 20 years of marriage so far to have I even learned it now? I don't know. <laughs> it's hard. But all of those things are distractions that distract us from what God asked us to do. As a church, we have to face the same questions. There's a lot of things we could be doing, a lot of good things we could be doing, a lot of people that could be crying out for help. Hey, come to us, help us. What should we be doing? We can't do all of it. Well, enough of that, because I want to turn the corner to see how Nehemiah responded to this. Our second major point comes from the verse 8. I've said it once, twice, hundreds of times. I love the understated way Scripture comes to us. We have this, this oh, they're, 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 they're stirring up and they're getting mad and they're angry and they're going to come and fight and they're going to threaten and they're going to they're cause confusion. And Nehemiah just says, and we prayed to God and we set a guard as protection against them day and night. And he goes on to say, he, he put those places, uh, those, those guards in the most vulnerable places, the open places where the wall was the lowest. And he said, we're going to keep on working. We, I covered this earlier when I did the leadership principles, but we covered the fact that a godly leader knows how to balance prayer and action, and we see it again in Nehemiah right here. We saw it earlier, way back in chapter one. We see it again. He prays, and then he does something. He prays, and then he does something. This is the balance that has to be held there all the time, and I said it back when we did it back then. We tend to go one or the other. We tend to be either really strong in prayer, or else we just get stuff done, and we need to put them both together. By the way, when it says they prayed to God, and they set a guard, they set a watch. People watching, and those two words occur together uh, with, well, at least the, 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 the idea of them occurs together with some frequency through Scripture, but never as clearly as when Jesus is in the, is in the Garden of Gethsemane with his followers. Look at what he says to them. Watch and pray. Same two words. Now, not in the exact same language because one was Hebrew and other Greek. But watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. This is the battle we are in. We're not fighting to rebuild walls physically, folks. You know that, right? Like, we're not struggling to build a building or a wall around the town. We are fighting the spiritual battle to have walls, have identity as believers in Jesus Christ among us, in us, through us our families, and us individually, and as a church. This is the battle we're fighting. Watch and pray, stand guard, and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Nehemiah prayed to God, who ultimately provides protection, but he didn't just sit back and say, well, I'm not gonna do anything about that. He also set a guard. He took action. 
I can't stress that enough. We tend to do one or the other. It takes both. And then, I want to say one more thing because it's one of my favorite verses in probably all of Scripture, so I won't spend as long on this as I probably would like to. Just because I, well, I probably have preached a whole sermon on this message, on this verse. But I want to say this first. A godly leader, and we talked about he knows how to balance action and, and prayer. That was the one from before, principle from before. Here's one I want to bring you to today because a godly leader also knows how to clearly and effectively communicate truth. This is something we need to tuck away for us. Anyone who's in a position of influence, which is almost all of us at some point in our lives, have positions of influence over other people, know how to effectively communicate truth. Nehemiah doesn't just station a guard and say, I'm going to encourage you physically by having the presence of weapons around and saying, well, we won't be too surprised. We'll be, we'll be ready when they come. But he also encourages them uh, in their spirits. He encourages their hearts. And he says this to them. Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight. Fight for your brothers, and your sons, and your daughters, and your wives, and your homes. In one, well, it's actually two sentences. There's another period there. But in one phrase, in one short phrase, Nehemiah does so much. He communicates so effectively. He reminds them of theology. Don't be afraid of them. Remember God. If we're going to talk about who to be afraid of, don't be afraid of them. Be afraid of God. He reminds them not just of theology. He reminds them of history, of who God is. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. Think of all the things he has done. Remind yourself. And then he doesn't just tell them theology. He doesn't just tell them history. But he communicates to them what's at stake. This battle we're engaged in is not just to put stones back on top of stones, friends. This battle is to fight for our brothers and our sons and our wives and our daughters and our homes, our very homes. Our lives are at stake. Yes, perhaps physically, but I believe even back then, Nehemiah was saying far more than physically. Our lives are at stake. Oh, brothers and sisters, it is so good for us to frequently be reminded of our theology, of what we believe. Jesus said, don't be afraid of those people that can kill the body. That's all they can do. But rather fear the one who can put your soul into hell for eternity. Don't be afraid of them. Remember your theology. Know what you believe about God and then act out of that. This is the message for us today. Today, right now. Don't be afraid of them. But remember God. Remember, do a little history lesson. Start with this one right here. Look at all the ways God has shown himself to be faithful and powerful and strong and unstoppable. And then if you need more help, there's lots and lots and lots of Christian biographies that you can read through to look at how God has shown himself to be faithful and powerful and unstoppable. And then think of your own life. I'm sure you can think of a few times where God has shown himself to be faithful to you and powerful and unstoppable. Remember the Lord. He's great and he's awesome. And it is so good for us, brothers and sisters, to frequently, 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 frequently reorient ourselves around what's really at stake. We get distracted so easily. We get mission drift all the time. 
It's so good for us to reorient ourselves. Do this individually. Do this as a family. Why are we here? What does God want from us? We should do this as a church. Why are we here? What does God want from us? And fight. This fight is more than just to have the right to vote or to bear arms or to do what we want to in public. This fight is for our lives, friends, for our souls. Fight the right fight and fight for our brothers and our sons and our daughters and our wives and our houses. It's worth it. All eternity depends on it for us. It's worth it. This is the truth that Nehemiah conveyed to them. We're going to see the result. It's the truth that Nehemiah conveyed to them. It's the truth that I convey to you today. Hasn't changed. All these little boys and girls sitting around, all these babies we dedicated this morning. Are we willing to fight for them? Are we? It is going to be a fight. There's a battle. There's a battle for their soul. There's a battle for your soul. There's a battle for all of us. But we who are adults, I'm speaking to us as adults now, we who are adults, are we going to fight for our families? Do we have identities that are known as followers of Jesus? Things we don't do. Things we do do. Don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord. He's great. He's awesome. And fight for your brothers and your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. Pray with me if you would. Father, thank you for your word this morning. It's always so effective when your Holy Spirit speaks through a text to reorient ourselves around what your word has to say. There's many things that I'm assuming and hoping are being prayed, not just out loud from up the pulpit, but in our hearts, each of us with you. But for me publicly, I just want to ask for your forgiveness, Father, for being distracted. There's all kinds of things that distract me and get, get me off the track of what I should be doing. Yet you have called me to be a teacher, a preacher, to proclaim even as Paul wrote to warn everyone and exhort everyone, proclaiming Jesus and the gospel of his salvation so that we might present everyone faultless before him. Thank you for your amazing grace, your faithfulness to me, to us. God, we are indebted to you far more than we even know. Yet, what we can grasp and do know, we want to confess we are indebted to you because of what you've done for us, your faithfulness, your, your mercy and loving kindness toward us. And we want to offer ourselves back to you, allow you to have your way with us. Father, I pray that as we are in prayer right now, I pray that each of us would be willing to receive any specific information, any specific request, any specific 
correction, any specific exhortation from your Holy Spirit right now that you want to give to us as individuals, for us or for our families or for the church here. I pray that you would cause us to pay attention to that and we want to commit to softening our hearts and opening our ears and yielding our necks so they're not stiff so that we might follow through and obey. For in all those things, when we have chosen to follow Christ, we are known by our love and we cannot claim to love if we are not obeying what he has taught us. Thank you, Father. Jesus, we give you all glory and power. It is yours. Yours is the kingdom. Glory. We pray in your amazing, incredible name. Amen.